Welcome to Breaking the Mold, exploring the people and issues fueling business today. It's business time. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. And now, let's break the mold. Hi, and welcome to the second episode of the podcast, formerly known as The Roth Brothers Show. And that, now. That's a strong opening. I don't, I don't know. Thank you. <laughs> too strong? <laughs> so it was Roth Brothers for the first episode. Second episode is Breaking the Mold. I feel like we're like Prince. Like the third episode could just be a symbol, which. Formerly known as. Yes. Podcaster. Yeah. <laughs> The problem with changing the name each time, it's hard to find on <laughs> iTunes. But when you've got the kind of quality content that we have, people will search us out. So not only does the name change each time, but our host changes. Well, I am fortunate to be welcomed here today with my co-host, Adam Blank, a friend, a documentarian. A uh, patriot. My, my patriot. My curling partner, <laughs> noted author, Adam Blank. Adam, please introduce yourself. What makes you special? Well, I'm almost six foot five, and a lot of people find that intriguing about me. Those of us at five foot eight <laughs> yes. find that especially intriguing. I always offer to sell inches to other people, <laughs> like Evan. Unfortunately, medical science hasn't caught up with the brilliant entrepreneurial spirit yeah. I have. Yeah, it's just a matter of time. It is. You're, 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 you're ahead of your time. So we have a very special guest on today, uh, Joe Daniels, the president of the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. He's going to join us here in a few minutes. But as we always do, we spend a few minutes taking a business headline and kind of debating it here between Adam and I. Last episode, we talked about Amazon and their quest for world domination. We talked about Jeff Bezos's trophy room. Subsequent to that uh, interview, the drone story came out of the desire to use drones in order to deliver packages. We called it. We were the one who had the scoop on the drones. Well, what is the deal with the last mile with UPS if you're going to just then say, oh, we're going to use our own drones in the first place? Absolutely. And we spent time talking about US, UPS as, or USPS. It wasn't even yes. UPS, but USPS. Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. About uh-huh. that. I'm sorry. You can apologize to the eagle. <laughs> uh, and that is now a thing of the past when you just have drones firing packages Wait, at us in the city. Isn't you're, you're from... Kentucky. So yes. my first thought was that there's going to be somebody with a shotgun yeah. who sees these things flying around and is going to be like, I want to get me one of them. Like, you can picture them like sticking it kind of like on their lawn with like, you know, like on a stick, you know, the well, just a, drone around. You know, it'll be portions of the of the drone will be up on their wall above their mantle. Like there's a horn of a deer and then there's part of a Bezos <laughs> drone <laughs> sitting there. So we are going to move to a debate that transcends time where we won't worry about being scooped by by drones. We're going to talk about wealth inequality. Doesn't matter how liberal conservative you are. The fact is that in this country worldwide, there is a growing dispersion between the wealthy and the poor. Couple stats. The top 1% in America earn as much as the bottom 60% combined. And they have that top 1% has the amount of wealth of the bottom 90% combined. And it's become such a topic for conversation. Yesterday when I was downtown in front of City Hall, there was a rally of hundreds of mainly union workers who had placards saying tax the rich. 
And I was shocked to find that it actually didn't even make the press. Like, it wasn't on the news. It wasn't on the radio. There were no Twitter, like, about this, like, big movement, big, you know, rally downtown in front of City Hall. It was just more kind of, that's just become part of our parlance right now. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's been, it's a big spread, right? Those stats, it's gotten worse yes. since the recession, since the Great Recession. It's mm-hmm. a, a lot of that money is in finance. It's in stocks. And that the people who own are, are, you know, those stocks are getting juicier. They're getting bigger and fatter. And how do you take that issue and say, well, okay, now we want to spread this out? Well, that's where taxes come in. And I think there's it's not a surprise that a populist uh, mayoral candidate like de Blasio in New York, his main point in his platform was raising taxes on the rich. It's very easy to get behind that if you feel like that's the way to be able to reduce the dispersion is essentially as a redistribution of income. Higher taxes flows through to the you know the ones that, that, that most need it. So there's a lot of rhetoric going on in the among wealthy families, which is if, they're, if de Blasio is going to come in and going to tax us as a city resident, I'm moving to New Jersey. I'm moving to Connecticut. And you saw Chris Christie in, uh, on a Wall Street Journal conference basically make an outreach to all those people saying, come to New Jersey. I feel bad for you as a New Yorker. But what he's really talking about is a tax that in the city right now going from 3.9% to 4.4%, right? You're talking Only about a, four. 4.4, <laughs> right? And you have to have over 500,000. And that raise, let's say you make $2 million. Let's say you are richie rich. You are the well, guy I who's mean, making $2 million that, a year. I just want to say that before you get to that change yeah. in numbers is that your talk, that affects only people making over $500,000 a year. Correct. So it's meaningless to 99% of the city. It's meaningless in terms of obviously impact in their impact taxes, in their in their in their pocketbook. No, but if you feel like you want something to change. It's not it's not meaningless in the sense of government needs to be funded if you want universal pre-K, the money's got to come from somewhere. I've always found that a lot of people consider the wealth inequality to be vastly different than than what it really is. I mean, those stats that you read, yeah. I don't think people internalize it. They think that they are either capable of getting there. They think that they that, that it isn't as bad as it really is. I don't know if I agree with that. I feel like if people... You're not agreeing with me? No, I'm, I... I mean, uh, <laughs> we should take this off here. <laughs> what the country is about is, is upward mobility, right? I mean, we were founded by... Theoretically. Theoretically. But the American dream is alive and well in everybody, right? I can get successful here, that the system isn't stacked against me. I think in other places, it's, you know, if you're... I think if that's an... Uh, immig- I don't think that's true. That it's a goal or you don't think that it's true that it's possible to get it? I don't think that it's true that people feel that way anymore. Huh. I think it may be true. America In America, the streets are paved with gold is a concept where people are coming over from other places to say, I can, if I work hard I, and I can do whatever I want to, I can do well for myself. But I think that, you know, people have been getting paid almost exactly the same. For how many years? 30 years? But if you start breaking it out by cohort, the people who are getting paid the same is the average, essentially, of people who would fall into my stats of the other 99%. It's actually grown by 12% for anyone who's in the top 1%. So sweet for them. It is good for them. (laughs) It is is good for them. And it is. But more. And maybe the ones who are saying mostly that this is what America is about, and I've embraced, I'm in the top 1%, I've earned it, I have a right to keep it. Right. So therefore, if it's not being embraced by non-immigrants who aren't in the top one percent, 
sorry for them if they were given the same opportunity that I am. I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but I think that is the perspective from the other side. The question is, how do you not just take money from one pocket and give it to another? The question is, how do you incentivize, encourage, educate, bring up the others who haven't been able to participate in the economic prosperity of this country? What's the method outside of taxes if Taxes alone aren't going to solve the problem. That was my original question. Like, what are you supposed to – it's the creation of jo- – and I'm certainly not on the side of trickle-down economics. Let the rich people have the money and it will slowly trickle down. Like, trickle is really a small word. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> Let's not use that philosophy. If we're not creating jobs and with globalization pushing jobs offshores, how is it that you're going to get that money to – the people who are low on money. I mean, I don't know how you do that besides transfer taxes. And I think that's the problem is it's not easy. It's messy. It involves a long time frame. It involves so many different aspects of investment that it's a lot easier to be able to stand behind a placard and rally tax the rich than it is to say, well, geez, the problem is that if you don't have a high school education, you it can't get a job that will let you get ahead. And only 6% of all kids in high school whose parents have dropped out of high school go on to get a bachelor's degree. And how do you fix that? That's not a discussion that, that leads to— It's a to, policy and, thing. It's a very boring, very long-term oriented issue having to do with making good policies yep. that affect people over years and years and not short-term— election cycle thinking. And we're entrusting the politicians to make those decisions, which is why tax the rich is a much more exciting way to say it. We'll end it there. A lot more to say about it, obviously. We, we can readdress this topic in future podcast episodes, but we're eager to get to Joe Daniels. For Adam Blank, Evan Roth, keep tuning in. Breaking the Mold. You're listening to Breaking the Mold. You can follow us on Twitter at BTM Show, or you can email us at btmshow at icloud.com. Now, more of Breaking the Mold. As co-hosts, we are excited about the opportunity to spend some time getting to know Joe Daniels. Joe, the president of the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, an incredibly high-profile, prolific role uh, not just in the city, but for the country. And we are going to explore a little bit about what his background is leading up to the memorial um, presence and going to spend some time talking about the museum and the memorial itself and then identifying a little bit about what the future holds for Joe. On Break the Mold, as you know, we always try to talk to somebody about their background from a personal perspective. So Adam and I will spend some time asking Joe about those questions. Let me just start by saying, Joe, I know your tricks. You shared with me the fact that your media training uh, led you to uh, understand that you can answer a question any way you want except for actually the question that was asked. Yeah, that's it's something that since I've joined the project is an incredibly important lesson is that if you, if you watch TV and, or listen to interviews, you hear the question, but what the person is actually answering can be pretty much what they want, and it's uh, proved very helpful. In preparing for this, I got a chance to, to look back at some of your video clips. You show an amazing agility of answering questions that weren't asked. It just was more you, whatever, whatever the point was that you wanted to make, but you start by thanking the host. I like that. So let, let's do this. Joe, um, I'm going to ask you a little question, just a little bit about your background. Sounds great. <laughs> um, 
But, in a, you know, when it comes to the uh, the media side and media training, given this project, the 9-11 Memorial Project, which over the years has certainly engendered its share of challenges and controversy and the idea of a base of stakeholders, which is so diverse, the ability to, you know, to be able to address a diverse group of stakeholders um, that will always end up disagreeing with each other, mm-hmm. it is a real fine line that has to be walked on some issues. So it's, uh, it was sort of a trial by fire in that sense, but um, it's been an important important asset. But you weren't hired because of your media expertise. I mean, is it being a lawyer, working at Cravath, well, being a consultant? I'd like to even go back even further. Like you say, you know that you know him. He's got some. He's got this media training. Where where did it? Where did he get this media training? All, what is he talking about? All, here? Honestly, all the media training has been on the job. And I, I remember my very first interviews with New York One. Um, it's probably like six o'clock in the morning, standing freezing cold outside of the construction site. This was back probably in two thousand and six. Um, and just, you know, shaking with nerves. Um, and so this is a it was a perfect example of this. The more times you do it, the easier it gets. Mm-hmm. And I've I got the advice that that Evan was just talking about that um, you don't have to directly answer the question. It's not necessarily a question of evading, but particularly as a lawyer, I, you get trained to be very precise on what you say and getting to the right answer. So it was a, it was a significant switch to be able to say, look, I know you've asked me a question, but this is the point that I want to make. Now you have to do it in a way that at least relates to, so it doesn't appear as if. Um, but it's uh, it's been a real helpful way to communicate to our to all the stakeholders in the project. All right, so let's back up. So I'm not sure what the typical path is for somebody that runs a memorial and museum, but it seems unusual to be a lawyer, a consultant, working for a not for profit. Do you look back and say, I can't believe I'm so lucky to have gotten this job, or does it all make sense now? You know, it's it's a mix. I do think it feels like uh, that my experience ended up being incredibly helpful. The I started out as a lawyer. I was at Cravath. And um, around 2000, when the, there was the dot-com boom, there's so much energy in the business market, um, I decided that I wanted to do something where I could be a bit more creative with my thinking. So I went to McKinsey and Company for a couple years and had a wonderful experience. They have a a program um, for non-MBAs where they hire JDs and PhDs and they send you this mini MBA, which I thought, I remember getting the paperwork. It was like, so, you know, before you start, we're going to send you to Clearwater for three weeks. And I'm picturing not quite a boondoggle, but it was the most intense month, really, that basically crammed everything that business school attempts to teach over a four-week period. And McKinsey gets these amazing professors to do it. But it was there was almost no fun at all. But it was an incredible <laughs> experience. And I so I started working in the financial institutions group at McKinsey, which f- kept me in New York because a lot of the, our clients were here. And it just so happened that um, I was working for American Express, a study on a study for American Express, on the morning of 9-11, and I, I remember getting on the E-train. I remember I was a little late that day because I was going, to, I was planning to go see the Yankees that night, and Roger Clemens was going for his 20th win. Um, so I was just gathering stuff together, and I remember getting on the E-train. I'd go down to the World Trade Center every day, and then I would walk across the plaza, across West Street to American Express. And I got off the train, and I remember thinking, you know, this seems a little different. There's people, more people coming into the subway than should be for morning. It looked like rush hour, but in reverse. 
But, you know, it just sort of like, that's odd, but it didn't really make note of it. And then I get up to street level, and I remember standing and staring up at the North Tower, and there's this huge, black, gaping hole in the tower, smoke pouring out. And at that point, you know, that was shock, but it still felt like something I understood. You know, some woman said, was there a bomb? And it seemed like it's just a big fire, but a contained situation. And then a few minutes after that, I remember something I'll never forget, which is something that later on, I guess, relates to the museum, but I saw people falling from the building. And when you're standing there at street level and you're looking up a thousand feet in the air around the hundredth stories where many of these people who were forced to jump did, to see a human body fall out, um, at that moment, the mind went to, this is, uh, this is un-understandable, it's ungraspable. And I remember all of us are staring, and a few minutes after that, it was just this incredibly bright flash. And as light travels faster than sound, <clears throat> um, this is when United 175 hit the South Tower. And this fireball basically shoots out overhead. Second later, the rumble rips through lower Manhattan. Everybody that I was with, we just started running north. I remember getting stopped by a group of older women who said, did you hear, did you hear? And they're like shaking me, the Pentagon's been attacked. And, you know, it's sort of this this journey that I got to Washington Square Parks. So I lived in uh, the West Village at the time. I remember walking in the parks and a huge line of people looking up behind me and all of a sudden they just start screaming. I turn around and that's when the South Tower, which was hit second but collapsed first, fell went by St. Vincent's Hospital, a famous picture of uh, all these doctors and nurses in their blue scrubs waiting for the injured, which for the most part, there weren't very many at all. Um, get back to my apartment, finally got in touch with my wife, went to my the roof terrace, saw the North Tower collapse, fighter jets flying overhead. Um, so when they started the Memorial Foundation, uh, a colleague of mine who worked for Dan Doctoroff who was at the city at the time as deputy mayor knew that because of my specific 9-11 experience, my connection that I would want to be involved. And I remember he set me up with the president of the organization at the time and she interviewed me and at the end of it, we had a great interview. She called me up a few days later and she said, do you want to be my chief of staff? And I said, that sounds great. She calls me up a couple days later and said that the her board, the board of directors, um, which was at, founded by John Whitehead, um, the board had decided that since this is not a government institution, we she doesn't need a chief of staff. So, but then she was like, "Can you do anything else?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, I'm a lawyer. I can, I can clean up. You know, <laughs> I, I'm a good, good, like you know, garbage cleaner." Exactly. So I was like, "I'm a lawyer," and she's like, "That's great because I need a general counsel." So that's how I joined as general counsel. I had only a couple of years of ex- corporate experience at Cravath, so it was a little, you know, I had to do a bunch of learning on the job. And then 11 months into it, uh, May 2006, I got a call from someone on the board, um, Ira Milstein, an incredibly excellent lawyer and, and man, um, calls me up on the Friday before Memorial Day and says, Joe, there's going to be a change in the president's office and we need you to step in on an interim basis. Would you be willing to do that? And I said, absolutely. So I became acting president and I'll never forget. I remember just thinking to myself, if I could just keep acting president on this, my resume for a few weeks, because <laughs> then it's legit. But things started to turn around and we had a big successful agreement that I'd been working on as the lawyer and that was uh, signed in July of that year that really once and for all, and that was the low point of the project um, as 
the, the change was happening, um, but it defined how much the memorial needed to contribute to the project in terms of private fundraising, who was going to have the construction responsibility, um, which was the Port Authority. All that stuff had been fought over, which led to a lot of slowing down of our fundraising previously. So we were able to turn it around. John Whitehead says that he wants to step down from the chairmanship and still stay on the board. And I remember there was another board member who looked like he was going to become the chairman. And we had a great relationship. But he said to me, he said, you know, Joe, if I get the chairmanship, there's no way I can keep you as president because he's not a big enough name, he said, and I didn't have enough gray hair. So I was like, well, that's... How old were you at the time? I was uh, 33. So he, uh, so I said, you know, I was not happy about that at all. But, you know, I was like, well, what am I going to do? And then I got a call that uh, Mayor Bloomberg was very interested in, in becoming the chairman and that eventually happened. And he doesn't care if you're, you know, nine or 90, it's all merit. He interviewed me and uh, I remember called me up and, and said, uh, he, he ha- is famous for saying a line when he hires somebody, but the, 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 ni- the way, nice way to say it is he said, don't screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> and that was October of 06. But there, there, the funny thing about your story is it's, it's a networking story. You just happen to be right. the right person right. Or in the right place, at least, because you weren't you by your own uh, admission, you weren't the right person because you didn't know. Yep. Right. And you had to grow on the job, and then somebody steps down. I mean, were there other people in the mix? The truth is, is that the the initial decision to make me acting president, you know, the organization we had board members literally in the New York Post arguing with each other. That the organization was at such a low point at this period. It was there was issues, programmatic issues with 9/11 family members. There was this issue um, of putting another museum, the International Freedom Center, on the site of Ground Zero, which got hyper political. So having me step in was sort of the easy part. As things started to turn around, they did. There was a vetting process. Spencer Stewart was brought in, um, but I had the fortunate ability to 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 have shown that in the few months that I was president, we were able to start turning things around and calming things down. So it certainly wasn't a given, um, but uh, it's, it, it is, a, you know, I always describe it as a battlefield promotion, which truly is, you know, you have the, a general in the field who goes down and who's the next guy. Um, so their circumstance played a lot, big role in this, and it's been a tremendous privilege doing it. There's also the train of thought that there's two types of CEOs. There's a wartime CEO and a peacetime CEO. You proved your chops as a wartime CEO, which is interesting because I don't really think of you as uh, Harvey Keitel in Pulp Fiction. You're talking about the wolf? (laughs) I can be. But you can't. You've clearly showed to somebody you could be. There has been a period of bliss, you know, in terms of success, in terms of very unusual reviews from all sides, left, right, center, who give credit to this just being at least the memorial part. The museum, I think, is, you know, still rolling out. But the memorial is just being incredibly tasteful, well done, true to its spirit. Have your qualities of what it takes to be a good president changed as things have improved? Well, I, I've certainly learned a lot and have been able to adjust over the years. I think that um, one of the biggest lessons that I learned initially is which is that when 9-11 happened, there was a very positive intention from government to want to get as much input on stuff as possible. What was going to be built? How is it going to be designed? Um, I think the issue it was that I noticed as a spectator um, was that when you 
tell someone that they can provide their input. If you're not clear about the expectations of what's going to be done with that input, you end up with a lot of frustration. So when you have a 9-11 family member being very passionate, clearly emotional, and, and expressing a preference for something, when that something doesn't happen, there's a lot of frustration. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I, I learned that we were able to do is to, to be very clear with people and different stakeholders that we, we gather data, we want to hear input, but right up front say, at the end of the day, we have our own process. We have a board of directors of 50, 11 of whom are 9-11 family members, and we are going to make the decision that we think is right. And I think that that's helped because people, have, it's there's a less of an anxiety around like, where's my stuff showing up? And, you know, the other big thing is the actual opening of the memorial on the 10th anniversary I remember that morning, you know, we had worked on this for years, raised all this money, but there, the morning of that we opened to the families, which was 9-11-2011, and to see families for the very first time um, come on to the memorial, find the name of their loved one, you just knew. I mean, it was almost, almost spiritual in the sense you just knew that it was it was working, that, it, that people were embracing it. You could tell, like, some families, very quiet moments, crying with, you know, touching their loved one's name. Others treated it as a family reunion with laughing and hugs, and it was just a real broad spectrum of humanity. And now that we've had, we've had 11 million people come in the last two years from all 50 states and 180 different countries, and that's also establishes credibility as an organization as we build and roll out the museum. The memorial is so reminiscent of uh, the Vietnam Memorial. I mean, in all of the things that you had to learn to do, how did the decision about making it like that making it an architectural piece, making it so specific like that as opposed to something more symbolic. I guess the falls and all that are symbolic as well. Well, it, it, I think it's a good question. And, and the the, memo- the competition to, to select that design was the largest in international history. That happened before the organization existed. That was run by the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation. Um, but it was 5,200 entries from 63 different countries. And the guy that won it was a young architect who happened to be working for the city of New York, um, Michael Arad, Israel, he's uh, Israeli by background. And uh, it's interesting, Maya Lin, who's the designer of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, she was on that jury. And so the notion of mm-hmm. the names, which I think is the biggest power, most powerful thing about Vietnam, being able to translate that to this memorial um, was incredibly special. And we we did something that I think no other memorial will ever do, I, I would argue, ever, which is we, we took two and a half years to contact each and every one of the next of kin of the 2,983 victims and ask them if they had a request for their loved one's name to be next to someone else. So it took two and a half years with a massive algorithm that I don't understand. Um, but essentially, what it allows for is you have best friends together on the memorial, guys that worked on a trading desk for 15 years. You have people who are married with different last names. So the memorial itself is not is organized. It's not alphabetic. It's not chronological. It's fundamentally organized by meaningful, what we call meaningful adjacencies. So when you see a family, particularly on that anniversary, or when they come now and, and you know that they're looking down and they're seeing their name of their loved one, their son next to his best friend, both who worked at Canner, as an example, um, it brings a level of comfort that I think is, is pretty extraordinary. And it's one of the things we're most proud of, which is the names arrangement. So as you think about what you've learned on the job, so much of it is specific to 9-11. Having an acting president on your resume 
opens up a lot of doors. You remove the acting. You are the president. Hypothetically speaking, are you on a career track now that you can't get off of, essentially, that is, you know, in some way you are you are cast type in the in the role that you play now, maybe for, you know, other organizations? Or is it something that allows you to kind of open doors to do anything else that you might be interested in? You know, it's it's certainly a question I think about. I've been fortunate enough that the the board of directors of the memorial is really made up of individuals that that cover the business spectrum in many different ways. Folks like Ken Chenault from American Express, Bob Iger from Disney, the mayor, obviously, and many, many others, um, as well as folks from the entertainment business, um, as well as our 11 family members. So I think it's more for me is figuring out if I ever did want to move on, what would that be? And I look at the qualities of the job that I have now. I mean, I was the 11th employee of the organization, and now we have, you know, 300 or so. And it feels like it's a team that I built. And it's the notion of going somewhere else, it's going to have to, in some ways, mm-hmm. replicate it. And the, the, my favorite thing, if there is a favorite thing about what I do, is the idea that, you know, we raised $450 million we built this memorial, we built this museum, but or we're building this museum, but the best thing is to see people come. And I love, you know, I get a daily uh, report about our attendance, and we're, it's just, to me, the idea of people coming here, visiting, going back to their cities or countries, talking about it and generating more people to come, that's why that's we great. built it. It's, it's to share with other people. It's to allow them to have this moment at the memorial. It's going to allow them to learn something in the museum. So that makes me think of, like, whatever the next thing is, I want it to have that or at least a, a large impact as well. That's great. What you're defining is an entrepreneurial success and appreciation for your accomplishments. You work more or less within a you know, a defined governing body, right? This is, you know, when you think of government, you think of anti-entrepreneurship that really doesn't allow for expression of individual thought, individual success in that same way. That's an amazing carve out. Is that insight that you can broaden to other government organizations that if there's only a way to kind of capture what you've been able to feel as a source of pride in the work that you do, at the same time, you, you work in a very public space that most private entrepreneurs would never trade with. Is there something else that you can learn from You that? know, it, it's – I think there's certain – I mean, we are a private foundation, but obviously it's – the government plays a big role in our lives because there's the Port Authority, there's the city, there's the state. Um, but, you know, Dan Doktoroff, who I thought did an incredible job of organizing um, New York's Olympic bid, um, it's stuff like that, like good private – you know, and ultimately us not getting it is had to do with politics, the West Side Stadium, potentially right. the politics at the IOC, whatever. Um, but the idea of being able to organize across business and nonprofit and government to create something is something I get very jazzed about. The notion of just doing that with inside government. I mean, I'm not overly optimistic just looking at the way that Washington is operating as an example. So I like the idea of these public-private partnerships, um, which I think that we're a pretty good example of. Uh-huh. And that was the reason Bob Steele just announced that as well, a $100 million fund being raised for uh, – that was a public-private partnership, city funds matched with private funds to invest in early-stage biotech companies. Yeah. It's a lot of fanfare. Not to get too far into kind of New York politics, but do you see that continuing kind of in the de Blasio? I hope so. I think what – uh, Bob Steele and the mayor has done has been t- just 
tremendously smart. This the idea of doing this open competition for an engineering school, recognizing that talent, engineering talent, software engineers and all the other all the other kind of engineers, you need a just a top tier engineering school to do that. And they, you know, they had this big competition in Stanford and Cornell, and and Cornell ended up winning the top slot. Although in partnering with the Israeli institution Technion, that's just amazing. And mm-hmm. the city, all the city provided is they're providing the land, they're providing some basic infrastructure, but otherwise, that's the universities that's raising the money and paying for it. Um, so I, I mean, it's so smart that I, I'm hopeful that uh, Mayor Elect De Blasio will continue that kind of thing, and I, I think he will because it's good. It's good for the city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sticking kind of just a little bit on public and private issues for you personally, you know, I think you're a private person. It's got to be in some ways challenging to read about your salary in the post or to have the press pick up on the fact that you aren't at the World Trade Center ceremony for the 1993 bombing. Like, how do you deal with that? And also thinking hypothetically about something in the future, is that a part that you would hope and whatever you decide to do in the future, either with Memorial or not, that you can eliminate? You know, it's on balance through all the press that we've done. I've been really incredibly happy with it on balance. Yeah. Um, One of the most impactful things that recently happened last spring is 60 Minutes did a piece on the museum, and it was the first time, it was Leslie Stahl, and it was the first time to be able to walk her down and just have her embrace the space it was it was great and you never 60 minutes in particular they they're they're they hold no punches back and they had there was another piece they had done not about us but about the world trade center a few years ago with a different correspondent that was just absolutely brutal Mm -hmm. so generally the press has been good the stuff that you're talking about the personal i mean the first time i there was a story it was it was pretty hard to deal with that was negative and the the worst one ever and i i mean it's now it's funny i guess but (laughs) I opened up the newspaper and there's a picture. It was a story about our salaries because it's on our 990s. Um, there's a picture of me standing there with my arms spread and big goofy smile on my face in front of a donation box. And the, the, they had superimposed at the bottom of the picture literally four Girl Scouts in their sashes. And they said, <laughs> these Girl Scouts are, are doing their bake sales to pay the fat cat his salary. And so, that was, but it, what, what bothered you? I mean, it was true, obviously. So, I mean, you know, you just didn't like seeing the truth come out yeah, that way. Yeah, I mean. no, there were a lot more Girl Scouts than those four. Exactly. All right, <laughs> that's, right. that's but like that kind of thing. In my, I remember my mom, and she, you know, every once in a while, she'll she wants to write letters to the and editor. Defend you, sure. Yeah. And I always say no, and then she's like, "Well, I'll use my maiden name." I said, "No, they'll still figure it out." But she goes through herself the exercise of writing the letter, sending it to me, and then not sending it in. Uh. But how much? I mean, that that seems to be a, a, a sort of a rarefied air problem because most of the people that are interested in what you're doing don't know these things, don't pay attention to that, and don't care. So it seems like, I mean, if you you, know, you say on balance. You're fine with it because it seems like that seems like a very small contextual problem. It is, but it's a personal problem. Yeah, that's the thing. It feels. I mean, and you're right. The people that from a certainly are a donor base. And by the way, that story basically gets written every year about folks who run the Met. I mean, it's not an uncommon story. But somehow, you know, they say because it's 9-11, supposedly, it's it's the same argument people say, well, the museum should be free. Right. And crazy. and the question is, yeah, if we, if we could wait. And I love it when it's the politicians that say that who are also not helping us with funding. So <laughs> that's why the mayor has been, I mean, one of the reasons he's been such a good 
leader because, you know, he knows that these things have to get paid for, that we're not going to. And by the way, his reaction to the salary story, and this is why every, many people who work for the mayor are, are, I mean, everyone is recognizes how loyal he can be to his own people. His quote, when he got asked the question, like, are these guys getting paid too much? And he's, it basically was like, no, they're underpaid. Nice. And he's dead serious about it. Um, and that's the truth. And he knows more than anyone that, you know, you talent individuals ha- makes actual difference. And so you want to attract that talent. It does. But it's not a true meritocracy. You're right. You're not getting paid what you're worth. But not, not, you get your annual review. It's review time these days, right? And comp comes with it. There's factors about your performance, the memorial's performance. Sure. And then there's the factor that most people don't have to face, which is how is this going to be perceived in public? Absolutely. How, how frustrating is that, that you are limited in terms of the compensation reflecting your success by the fact of the optics? I mean, honestly, I, uh, while everyone who works wants to be paid more, This job has been such an incredible privilege on so many levels that when you talk about non-financial compensation, like people that I've gotten to to interact with and meet and, you know, it's been incredible. I mean, I got to, you know, meet the Queen of England on my birthday at the site and and my favorite all-time baseball player, Mariano Rivera, and show him and his family around. I mean, there's so much other stuff that I I can live with the the frustration. Yeah, that's priceless. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would imagine there's enough meaning and value that the amount of money in your life is not the question. It's what you can do. I agree. I mean, that that is it. The, the financial side was never the primary driver. It's and it's certainly I'm not. It's we, we live in a great apartment. Kids are happy. I get to walk to work. It's you know all that stuff is good. And you're right. It's the other stuff that has been so amazing. A great group of people to work with. A staff that is just incredibly dedicated and it's also it's uh the idea of opening is really uh, it's very energizing the, the rallying around the 10th anniversary and like we got to get this done the eyes of the world will be watching us this site that's not up to us what's up to us is have a memorial ready that the country can be proud of was incredibly energizing and now we're like six months away or so roughly um from opening the museum and it's going to be another global moment if we do it right and in some ways it'll be harder because you could see the memorial physically the museum will be judged not only on its space which is incredible when you go in it but mostly on its content and that's all about the choices we've made what stories how we expressing what happened what led up to 9-11 what our world looks like afterward so there's a lot of you know anxiety but positive energy behind it. it's not my, my biggest dislike in work was always boredom. And this job has almost, for the last eight years, have never been boring. Has it ever gotten too much? Overwhelming? Yeah, there. I mean, certainly, there were times that have gotten like that, particularly in the lead up to the memorial, that the, the pressure was, uh, is pretty intense. And mm-hmm. we feel it now, too. And, you know, the board of directors that we work for, I mean, when you have Pete Peterson on your finance committee and you're in there... <laughs> And he's asking me really good, tough questions, but it's like the margin for error is very, very small. So I do, you know, I do feel pressure because it's such a group, great group of people that I, the, the, the board that I work for. So tell us a little bit about certainly Sandy being located downtown New York. You were in the eye of the storm in many ways. How did the memorial and the museum handle the floods? Well, I remember the Monday night of the storm. So the storm happened basically on 
yeah, Monday night, and then it was into Tuesday. And I remember at 10.45 at night, um, I'd been getting all these updates from our construction folks that were down there just monitoring the space because it's primarily the museum is underground, 70 feet below the two memorial pools. And at 10.45, I got my last report from our construction head, and he was like, museum's fine, no problems, holding, no water at all. And I remember turning to my wife and saying, Maybe I should tweet this out to our social media following. We have 40,000 Twitter followers or so that everything is fine. And she's like, why don't you just wait till morning? <laughs> and then starting at like 3.30 in the morning and then all the way through, um, things took a turn for the worse. And we had, at the end of it, we had 22 million gallons of water covering seven and a half feet of the museum. And, and it was just you in a bucket. <laughs> exactly. I remember going down that morning of Tuesday. There's no power at the World Trade Center at all. And the museum in pitch black, it just had a flashlight in with the construction guy. And we, there's an overlook that you can see down into the main space. And you just see this oily black mass. And it was, you know, and the thing is, I just need to know, the, the memorial never flooded. The water did not come in huh. from the roof. It was, there was open construction mm -hmm. surrounding us on all sides of the other stakeholders that are that are uh, not yet finished. Um, so there was lateral penetration of the water. In the you know silver linings look of things, it was great that it happened then and not when we were open. And it's really uh, we did a very deep with the Port Authority forensic analysis and all the different penetrations. So that will never happen again. Um, it was awful, but you know that site out of any in the country, you know, it's been through a lot and can handle it. The museum will will you know keep its trust to to hold these artifacts. In place. And have you done anything to protect it since? Yeah, we did. We did a lot of filling of penetrations, watertight doors, um, extra pumps. And then on the other side of it, that's the preventative side. The other side, we have enhanced our protocols that if we know a weather event huge like that is coming, there's, we will take steps with artifacts to protect them, to raise them up mm -hmm. or to take them out. The, the only artifacts that were during, there during Sandy were the very large pieces of steel, which honestly handled it and could handle it. What we worry most about, we recently got a donation of Todd Beamer's watch. Todd Beamer was the passenger on Flight 93 who said, let's roll and help rally for the counterattack on that flight. His, his wife, his widow, Lisa, gave us the wa his watch that was found in Shanksville that still got the 11 on the date stamp. Those kinds of artifacts are, are ir I mean, beyond irreplaceable. So the protocols are in place to protect things like that. And if we need to, we will. It's a 9-11 museum, a 9-11 memorial. I'm guessing it takes into account Flight 93. It takes into account Pentagon. Is there any aspect of it where it looks to discuss or be the voice of terrorism in the United States? What is the voice it's trying to sort of put out into the world about that in the larger scope? So one of the thing, decisions that we made early on was um, that this museum had to be a serious educational institution. So when we think about the historical part of the museum, it's really broken up into three simple chunks, which is what happened on the day, which takes you through the 102 minutes of the attack of 9 on 9-11. But then you step back and it, it looks at what led up to 9-11. So in that area, we talk about um, the 93 bombing at the Trade Center, the bombings of the U.S. embassies in East Africa, the USS Cole bombing. Um, one of our biggest challenges was talking about the formation of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Um, and so we do try to tackle that stuff. Um, similarly, in the post 9-11 part of this museum, there'll be the aftermath and everything that happened, the recovery period. But we do lead our visitors to a point where the big questions that we face in society today that we think sprang out of 9-11, the most, 
I think, pressing one being the balance between civil liberties and national security. That's absolutely something that this museum um, won't so much drive the agenda on, but will be a forum for the questions. And you'll be able to explore and hear different perspectives on things like that. Uh, so we're really hopeful that it's a has a significant educational impact. Well, that's great. You have risen to the occasion, the Memorial Museum. It's your fingerprints that are all over it. And um, also living downtown and being able to experience all the great that it comes with it, I think from a personal standpoint and for what it means for, for this country has um, been an amazing thing. Thank you. Joe Daniels, thank you for coming on Break the Mold. What time it is. Breaking the Mold wants your feedback. Please visit our iTunes show page and tell us what you think about the show. Now, back to your hosts. Welcome back to Breaking the Mold. I don't know, Adam, I thought that was a really fascinating conversation with Joe. I I like the questions that you were asking about when you were basically put together that the only reason he has the job is as a result of contacts. When you think about a job that that's high profile, you would think the vetting process would have been so much more widespread, you know, hiring recruiters, you know, being able to get the cream of the crop. In the end, Joe just proved that he was the right guy for the job. I have to say that my reaction to that is like, there's a lot of people who are of high enough caliber that when put into specific situations that they care about, that, right. that they want to do well in, he said he learned on the job. Most people can. That's true. Learning on the job to be able to create a, a 9-11 memorial and museum, that's not the kind of job that you typically learn from. It's one, if I had to think about the pedigree for somebody, I'd have thought decades worth of experience, yeah. again, proving that they had something on their resume that resembled what the memorial you'd, museum was You'd go was for about. a guy who was like, oh, yeah, I was uh, instrumental in creating, I worked at the Smithsonian, I did this, I did that, that, right. had, a, that right. had a full that That, that pedigree, had like you veritas, yeah. you yeah. know, that was... Um, and he was... 32, he said, at the time. So he had already been working there for a year uh, or so. Yeah, as general counsel. Yeah, I mean— Also not the typical path. General counsel to CEO. Yeah, but he, and then it was it was not by merit that he got there. It was by— Connections. Connections. An associate of Dan Doctoroff n- not only knew Joe, so at least thought highly enough of Joe's work, but knew Joe had a personal connection to 9-11. Which a, lo- which a lot of people do. They what do. makes him so special as a lawyer, a business lawyer in New York City? Right. Who dime you, a dozen? Who used to uh, work down in that area? Another huge population. Yeah. You know what? He just happened. You know, he just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and yeah. I think it's a big thing. It is. It is. But his personal 9/11 experience. I know many more stories of people that went the other way. Right. I have a good friend who probably could have told a very similar story, has a very similar story to Joe in just that sort of graphic detail about their experience at being at the World Trade Center as the planes were flying into the building, the shrieking, the screaming, the bodies flying, who who was in a successful job working for an investment bank in a high at, at a high level who basically just shut down. He's like, I can't do this. He left his family, left his wife, went up to Vermont, rented a cabin, and just started writing, and essentially hasn't had a job since. So he ran away. Yeah, I I imagine there's plenty of both. Fight or flight. Yeah. Right? Joe's Joe's was... But Joe... How how to channel that into something that... Taking that experience and turning it into something that was just so much greater than him. But it was also offered to him in a way that 
oh, I know a guy right. who would be interested. Right. Right? And you know, everybody wants that to come drop into their lap. But I know a guy who's – But nobody's saying this. the guy that's writing in the Vermont cabin is interested. No. But like we say, like he was – he is a guy who was interested. He's a guy who stayed. And there were – a lot of them. Really, this is a story just about networking. This is a story about no, no, knowing no, no, no. the right I people. Say that. No, I'd say networking followed by merit. Well, networking with something to back it up with. Right. I mean, he's a guy who could back it up. Obviously, he could learn on the job. He wasn't – he didn't start out with the skills. He's had some skills in certain areas, but this is – Sounds and, so and, much larger. And the right that. rabbi, right? Having Bloomberg by his side, who was somebody who valued skill over age, right? But it that was... only came became apparent after he became the interim mm-hmm. president. And, and right, and, and that Bloomberg fell into that job yeah. a little bit more of you know happenstance more than there was there was a merit aspect to mm-hmm. it. But what well, he had already a chance to prove himself at that point, he grew into it. Yeah. When I also think about kind of his CEO skills. It really is rare to find a entrepreneur because he described it kind of in the way that the path that he took was, you know, in 2000 when other people were doing entrepreneurial type activities. He was a lawyer and chose to kind of follow a path that wasn't going to, you know, Silicon Valley and starting a dot com business, but entrepreneurial in and of itself, who could take his entrepreneurial desires, abilities, be able to work through the wartime CEO issues in the beginning of uh, his tenure at the 9-11 Memorial where there really were rocky starts and now is presiding over a much more peacetime CEO. The three for three, entrepreneurial CEO for in a wartime peaceful CEO, he – hypothetically speaking, he, he's set up to basically do a lot of interesting things with his career if he chooses to. If he chooses to, yeah. I mean he, part of it is he's capable. Mm-hmm. And I think there's just a lot of people who are capable and he was a, allowed to flower based on the positions that he had access to. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's great. Fascinating guest. So that wraps it up for our second episode of uh, Breaking the Mold. Adam Blank, co-host, thank you for being here. I had a great time. I'm Evan Roth. We'll see you next time. It's business. It's business time. You've been listening to Breaking the Mold. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter at BTM Show, through email at btmshow at iCloud.com, and at our iTunes show page. Breaking the Mold is recorded at the Hangar Studios in New York City.